News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer and Alex Brooklyn. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Hey, and we are going to be joined in a bit by Graham Raymond of the Daily News to talk about the city's jails, and then Steve Romaluski of the uh, CUNY Graduate Center uh, and its uh, excellent mapping service to talk about the, uh, the new electoral maps uh, that the Democratic Party has produced and is voting on on Wednesday uh, as we're recording this. Uh, but before we get to all that, we really must talk about the uh, penis plan quickly. Um, <laughs> so the penis plan, or, or more accurately, the NYPD spy plan, um, that got flown in a penis-shaped flight pattern. That uh, officer ended up, you know, getting mildly punished for that. His, uh, his wife, it turns out, has been running a lucrative fake vaccine card business where she gets vaccines and gets cards uh, and then sells the cards without delivering the vaccines, allegedly, for $200 a pop for grownups, I believe, and $60 for kids, allegedly. Allegedly, uh, these were actually found inside of NYPD hats, and she had $900,000 in cash and a ledger showing something like $1.2 So you do the math about how many unvaccinated people and quite possibly NYPD officers that might mean, and it's a little staggering. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, as I said. Um, Mayor Adams just delivered a, another powerful eulogy, I thought, at the funeral for uh, Officer Wilbert uh, Mora, uh, now promoted in death to detective. Uh, he did so previously at the funeral of Officer Jason Rivera. Uh, Joe Biden is visiting tomorrow, Thursday. It's notable that the president is coming to see the mayor, not the other way around. Uh, Chrissy, what are, you, what are you expecting out of that visit? I keep thinking back to the 94 crime bill and Biden's apology for it back when he was in a Democratic primary. And what he's likely to do now, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to this this meeting, largely because there are a few moving parts. One, Eric Adams has said he's the face of the Democratic Party, right? He's the new face of the Democratic Party. So what does that exactly mean? And I think part of it means Joe Biden does understand that the blue cities are Democratic voters, and they're very diverse voters. And I think he's probably a little curious as to how Eric Adams could be at once somewhat progressive and at and another time somewhat moderate and at another time pretty conservative, depending on uh, the issue at hand. I think obviously their main conversation is going to be gun violence because we're, it does feel like we're sort of in the 90s again. And Joe Biden does feel a little like he's stuck a little bit in the 90s. Uh, my concern is do we go back to these draconian, broken windows policing measures? But then again, de Blasio hired the architect of broken windows when he became mayor. So, like, obviously that's what progressives do as well. If I'm being optimistic, I'm hoping that the two of them will talk about funding of cities that extends beyond funding the police. We have been, we have all the data in the world to show us that Increasing police and increasing jails does not decrease crime. Like, we just keep throwing good money after bad. 
maybe we can think about putting more money in education programs or anti-violence programs or figuring out this iron pipeline that Adams keeps talking about um, or rebuilding the social safety net. So I'm hoping they'll have a more holistic conversation as opposed to a conversation just that extends beyond just policing and the need for more police. I think we have enough police. We're the largest paramilitary organization in the world. Like, settle down, guys. We get it. So in the 94 crime bill, of course, midnight basketball was the big thing. The Republicans, haha, yeah, dunked on. Uh, and oh, Biden- boo, oh, God, no. You owe me $5 for that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Ben will be right, right. now. <laughs> you thought you were, that was just going to pass. Right. Like, un- <laughs> I um, wish Katie Hoden commented. Were here. Katie Hoden would take you <laughs> to the park, take you to church in Queens. Right. Katie Hoden <laughs> is playing hooky again. She says she has to do reporting for her job and news Ooh. stories. What gives? Right. <laughs> All these people with jobs. What's that about? I, I do <laughs> okay, think so we haven't got the crime very bill. far since the nineties. In that, you 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 continually have. Uh, this idea that, that, well, in the short term, we need more money for cops. And then we need to also deal with root causes at the same time. But we can't have the one without the other. So what Biden apologized for, and it doesn't look like there's any sign we're going back to anything like, is, is draconian sentencing, three strikes and you're out, uh, the cocaine crack, sentencing disparity. But for all those apologies delivered in the context of a Democratic primary, uh, where he was on the right side of the field, you know, I do think his instinct is to say, but uh, what I can provide is money and support and money for policing. And I think Adams is very inclined to take that deal. And it's interesting that, that the, the president is, uh, is is coming here potentially to offer it. And, and what people and excuse me, that this is happening while Albany has been totally resistant to the reforms Adams has asked for, uh, mostly uh further changes to the uh, 2019 bail reform, which there was already one set of rollbacks to. Remarkably, nobody has shown any statistical evidence that bail has been driving this increase in violence. Nobody thinks it is. It may uh, have some some marginal impact, but that's become the, the center of the conversation. It's just sort of depressing to me in that we don't seem to be able to uh, really advance any of these conversations. And I, I do think the increase in, in, in violent crime even if the virus is driving that, just makes it that much tougher for the people who are looking for uh, root reforms and have been basically offering those as the solution since since the 1960s. I, I'm worried. I don't think it's ever going to go back to some of those draconian, horrible, harsh uh, sentencings that we saw. And I think part of that is due to the opioid crisis that happened from the mid-90s to like the mid-2000s, right? America's you know, young white youth started becoming hardcore junkies. And because of that, a lot, I mean, I mean, even under Trump, you have a lot of reform to sentencing. You have a, a bigger emphasis on diversion courts. You know, the reasons for that are obvious, but I don't, I don't know if we can ever go back because the opioid crisis put so many young people um, and otherwise, you know, uh, you know, uh, soccer moms, et cetera, et cetera, on this trajectory that normally would land you in jail, in prison. And so a lot of, you know, diversion courts had to be created. If Biden is coming here 
because gun violence is rising uh, in every American city. Maybe he's looking to try and work out an actual place where he can build a model democratic city that doesn't rely so much on policing, but I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that that is his fallback. I think that's Eric Adams's fallback. And I think, unfortunately, what we want to see is more money going into the huge amount that was like poured into helping victims of the opioid crisis, diversion courts, things like that. And I think, you know, bringing Alvin Bragg in and stuff um, would help coming out of de Blasio's, you know, shelter system uh, and kind of like chokehold on uh, justice reform in a, in a very strange way. There's a lot of room to breathe and it's like, do they take that opportunity? Will they? I I think that's the key question, Alex. There's a lot of room to do a lot of really positive things, but I don't know if Adams and Biden will be speaking about the opioid crisis, right? We don't really talk about that when we think about New York. So far it's been guns, 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 and safety, safety, safety. And so if we're having a holistic conversation, we absolutely need to talk about treatment programs and why it is that people are turning to drugs, why it is that we have these growing rates of suicide in various communities. I'm not sure if in this quickie first meeting, which sort of seems like, you know, a first date for the public, if we'll get to that. So we'll see. I guess we'll discuss it next week. So we've had six uh, NYPD officers shot as of today, February 2nd. That's a lot. Biden is coming here because that's happening, but he's also coming here because he's betting that Adams, Mayor Adams, can do something about this quickly. And he's putting his impromptu behind the mayor. Unfortunately, the the short-term solution available to the mayor is cops. So my gut is that's where the conversation is going. But with that, let's uh, let's bring in Graham Raymond, since I think he's going to have a lot to say about the circular nature of many of these conversations from his own reporting. (laughs) 16 people died in city jails in 2021. Uh, It's the most in decades. And maybe one big reason why is because so many COs are out on sick leave. It's meant that thousands of inmates a month aren't getting basic medical care, according to a new suit from uh, the Legal Aid Society, Brooklyn Defender Services. They're seeking a court order, although the jails are already supposed to be under the oversight of a federal monitor. There's a new person in that role, but the monitor has been releasing regular reports about the system's dramatic failures that have uh, continued to this point on the monitor's watch. And we're joined to talk about all that by Graham Raymond, uh, who covers criminal justice for the Daily News, very much including cops, courts, and jails, and uh, sadly has been reporting on fight clubs and dysfunction inside of Rikers for decades now. Uh, Graham, thank you for joining us. And I'm hoping you can help give listeners who are maybe picking up on bits and pieces of what's happening inside the jails an overview of that and uh, any sense of what's changing practically and politically under the watch of Mayor Adams and new DOC Commissioner Louis Molina. And lastly, what all that maybe says about the plans the previous administration committed to to close Rikers by 2027. Sure, Uh, there's just a tremendous amount happening right now and has been for months. Um, In September, the crisis at Rikers really erupted into the headlines. That was uh, in uh, detainees not getting basic services uh, and, and uh, a constant drumbeat of violence 
um, and neglect within the within the jails as a in in large part as a result of this enormous staffing crisis where thousands of officers were out either sick leave um, uh, partial or no inmate contact or AWOL. And uh, that at that point it was called a humanity, you know, it was called a humanitarian crisis. Um, and through the end of the year, the unions, correction unions and the de Blasio administration, along with the top people at DOC were uh, at odds in a way that I've never seen before. Just, just the, the uh, contentiousness of the exchange going back and forth was extraordinary. <clears throat> um, with the advent of Mayor Adams, the same situation continues. The staffing crisis, though it has gotten a little bit better, is still very much a problem. And the lack of basic services being provided to detainees is also remains a major problem, which is illustrated in the hunger strike that we had two weeks ago, which the DOC downplayed, but um, it was a, it was a, uh, a result of months and months of deprivation that's, that are going on in the jails. Um, the new DOC commissioner, Molina, Louis Molina, um, comes from Las Vegas. He's a former NYPD uh, detective. He worked for the Brooklyn DA's office. He spent a year um, doing work associated with the federal monitor over Rikers uh, on the use of force case, you know, which is called Nunez. Um, his strategy appears to be to get buy-in from the rank and file by building uh, bridges with the unions first. In other words, get the soldiers behind you and then uh, deal with the problems at hand. And he's done that um, publicly in three ways, which I thought were striking. One was he greeted the, the coffin of a correction officer who died of natural causes in Mexico on vacation. He greeted the coffin at JFK, and this, this officer was given uh, a, a kind of symbolic honor that the unions and rank and file felt was missing during the de Blasio years. Um, I often heard complaints that officers who were seriously injured in Rikers were not visited by the mayor and the hospital. <coughs> Certain. Uh, that was a to to the extent that that's true. I'm not totally sure. I know it's true in some cases, um, but this that was one thing he did. Second thing he did was two weeks ago he held a, a wide ranging town hall meeting with the rank and file in the unions out in Queens, um, which was well received by the rank and file. And then the third thing he did was he loosened he changed the uh, rules about calling in sick which is sort of complicated and I won't get into. But anyway, all these things together suggest he's trying to get the soldiers buy-in before he deals with the serious problems at hand, which are the conditions and uh, which are is the staffing crisis. With those, he, he, uh, he uh, Molina also asked the uh, deputy commissioner, a deputy commissioner, uh, Serena Townsend, to step down, which she did. And some of that happens in a transition, but she'd been very active in looking into use of force cases involving guards. Was that also part of this effort to get the uh, buy-in from the unions? Can you talk a bit about the union's posture uh, during the de Blasio years and under Sheraldi? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, Serena Townsend uh, came from the Brooklyn DA's office. She was a highly regarded investigate, uh, highly regarded prosecutor in the sex crimes, but the Special Victims Bureau, uh, and built a very good reputation for dealing with uh, the, the disciplinary system. She was the deputy commissioner for trials and investigations. She was named uh, uh, 
she was given a special job by the federal monitor to reduce the use of force case backlog, which at one point was thousands of cases. Um, and but the, the unions did not like her. Um, you know, they, they thought uh, the perception from from the unions was that she was overly aggressive and that she would uh, file charges against officers for defending themselves. I, I, I am not sure how much that was an exaggeration, how, how much wasn't. I think there were some very serious uses. There are many very serious uses of force cases that she pursued. At any rate, in December, uh, she had a meeting with the new commissioner in Molina in which he said, uh, he said, how many cases, he said, can you close 2000 disciplinary cases in my first hundred days in office? And uh, she balked at that um, mainly because of the legal requirements um, there's due process with disciplinary cases. Uh, there's often evidence. There's there's always almost always evidence underlying these cases, including surveillance video, which shows what happened in a given use of force case. Um, and there's an, all kinds of other disciplinary cases that relate to the staffing crisis that had to be dealt with. So she balked, and he fired her on January third, to much criticism. But again, this was, as you say, this was a fourth example of Molina trying to get the unions on board and the rank and file on board because they did not like her and said so publicly many times. So Graham, I've got a quick question. I want to circle back to some Eric Adams uh, statements you made. So with this new mayor who has a, a history in the NYPD, but he also knows how to work with unions and unions that represent officers uh, and the dynamics there. How confident are you that we'll see some real structural changes in Rikers or even the closing of Rikers under an Adams administration? Well, I hate to punt on the question. It's hard, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, he has, as you say, so rightly, you know, he, he has, he's not coming from the ivory tower. You know, he's, he's, he knows the system as well as anyone having worked in it for 20, more than 20 years. And, and so I think he has an understanding, he, and he said that he has an understanding of both the needs of the officers and the needs of the detainees. Um, he doesn't, you know, much was made about his comments about punitive segregation at the end of December, in which he said, basically, he was concerned about a new model of, of uh, segregation for, for detainees who, who commit violent acts um, would be too... Uh, basically loose. And he said he, he, he was, he basically said he was concerned about it without committing one way or the other. Um, um, and he also, you know, wants the correction officers to have a better, uh, a better state of work. Um, he has not backed off yet on cl the closing Rikers plan. He has said in the campaign multiple times that he were, still wants to close Rikers. He's not backed away from that. Uh, so he's got a balancing act to do between, but the other thing is that his, his base, his political base that elected him, but has elements both from the left, which favor closing Rikers and from the right, which favor law and order. So he's got to do this balancing act between them. Um, you know, perhaps his, his move will be to sell closing Rikers as improving conditions for both the uniform staff and for the detainees. Mm. Well, I could see Adams sort of, He's he's pretty interesting in the in the fact that he knows how to balance these both and questions. I I think my second question for you is 
You know, Alex has brought this up on the podcast a few times about the hunger strike. Uh, and just as a as someone who doesn't have a podcast or, or doesn't read the news very carefully, you wouldn't know that there was a hunger strike going on at Rikers. And so I, I, I guess conversations with your colleagues and, and people you know, who report on the city, how do you think that we can bring more attention to what's going on at Rikers? I mean, we had 16 deaths last year. I'm assuming there'll be another hunger strike at some point in time to change conditions due to COVID, due to abuse, due to food insecurities, you name it. I mean, we had a blizzard and we didn't hear anything about uh, how these uh, detained New Yorkers were were taken care of. Uh, what do you think should be next steps to sort of highlight some of the issues of what's going on at Rikers? Well, the fundamental problem of Rikers is that it's, a, it's closed. It's hard to get to. Uh, you have to have a specific reason to get there. And so this becomes a shield uh, that the agency can use, um, the unions can use, uh, interested, interested parties can use to kind of hide what, what happens. Um, the hunger strike was a natural progression of what started publicly in, the, in September. You know, there was a big press conference, state legislatures called it a humanitarian crisis in September. And this, this uh, hunger strike or food strike or refusal to take DOC food, depending on how it's, it, it, that was spun, is something that, you know, the people who run Rikers and the mayor's office have to be, have to recognize as it's, it's a progression. If they don't deal with the conditions, there will be other events. And um, during that, during that, that strike, there were indications that it had spread somewhat to other jails, but we didn't know the extent of it because it wasn't disclosed. There's a lot of lack of disclosure that makes it difficult to to uh, to really get a get a hold on what's what's happening. The Post just reported that there was possibly going to be another hunger strike that inmates were that inmates are planning a hunger strike um, in anticipation of Biden coming to New York, and in doing that, I'm assuming they're, you know, attempting to, you know, obviously expose, bring media attention to the bad conditions. But Rikers has been kind of an embarrassed, like a, a huge embarrassment for a lot of different city administrations. Right. And um, especially uh, starting with the beginning of de Blasio, like 2014, 2015, the Justice Report, um, Horizons, like crisis with sexual assault at Rosie Singers. So. I was really curious, since you have been reporting on Rikers for so long, what from your early years, like reporting on it and, and now, like, is this just going to keep going? Is this a strange, like existential cycle that will be spinning out like a slinky forever? Or, you know, are there some hard changes that we as New Yorkers can look forward to? You know, what do you see in Adam's? that could possibly be different than what de Blasio was doing? It's, it, I, I, when, I, when, I, when I think about my early work with The Voice, I think about two cases. Uh, Matthew Velez in 2001 was beaten to death by gang members in RNDC, which is the teen jail. Um, and that case was settled for a couple of million dollars. He was 17 years old. Uh, and then in 2008, Christopher Robinson was beaten to death. He was also, he was just 18. He was 17 when he went in. 
also by gang members, also in RMDC. Nothing had changed in the seven-year period. Um, and so to some extent, your, your question is well taken that, you know, things are going to happen like that. You know, it, it is a, it is a, a jail there. There are going to be things that happen. But I, I think that the, the, the whole framework needs to be addressed. You know, the, the fact that Rikers is out of sight, out of mind, you know, allows for a certain, allows people to maintain a certain distance from what's, from what's going on there that, that makes it seem less relevant. And, and so the care and, and that, that is supposed to be provided to, the, to detainees and to the officers, the conditions uh, goes lacking. And I think that was one of the basic elements of moving, of trying to move the jails off of Rikers into the boroughs. It would be more, more in front of people um, and better constructed. You know, a lot of a lot of the problems with Rikers involves just the the, the, the concrete and steel uh, organization of the jails. These weren't jails that were built with the detainee in mind. These were these are, and they're falling apart, and they have been for decades. Um, Stanley Richards, in, I interviewed Stanley Richards, the former number two at DOC, who's now back at Fortune, um, the other day, and he said they make weapons out of the facility, he said he found a 13-inch long plexiglass shank in one of the searches um, that was, you know, like a sword. Um, in 1989, there's a quote from the, 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 the then DOC commissioner in which he said this basically the same thing. He said they make weapons out of the facility itself. Uh, so the, the move to close Rikers could address a lot of these things. I guess my point is just the general framework and the construction of the buildings causes some of these problems in and of themselves. How much does the island part play into that? And I'm thinking about MCC, the now shuttered for the time being federal prison in lower Manhattan that was a model facility when it opened in the 1970s. Uh, Alex's father, Steve, was there. And that's some great stories. Um, and and is uh, also be, be, be became a uh, a dysfunctional shithole with no working clocks, uh, rats around, mold, uh, plumbing that didn't function, all those parts. So this is right in Manhattan, but it's a location people just walk by, don't think that much about, can't access. So we have these plans now for new smaller jails in the boroughs that they're part of the plan to close Rikers. Adams, who says he wants to close Rikers, has avoided taking a hard position on, on that necessary part. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I also know that you and uh, uh, Ravan Blau are working on a history of Rikers, but how much is unique to that place, unique to being an island to those facilities, and how much of this are simply the, the problems that consistently happen with jails and prisons where there aren't outside eyes there and over years and decades, conditions deteriorate. Well, certainly, um, certainly that's true. I mean, you know, that's absolutely true. Uh, but just remember that, that the, the department of correction has an enormous budget and the, the officer to detainee ratio is better than by far than any, jail in the country um 
the resources that are put into the system are uh, enormous and 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 um so oh and also the city i'm, I'm sorry the city spends over five hundred fifty thousand dollars per inmate per per inmate per year uh, on the system which is seven times more than or something or sorry anyway it's a lot more than a lot a lot of other municipalities so it's not like there's a lack of resources here so can you touch with that on sick leave uh, and, and maybe get into some of those details you, you you declined to before and why you have COs who are working double and triple shifts given this incredible staffing level. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a few factors. So basically, uh, for the past year, there have been roughly 2,000 to 2,600 officers, either uniform staff, either out sick, um, on medical monitoring, which means they were injured or have some other reason to have partial or no inmate contact or uh, AWOL, just not showing up for work. And um, the numbers fluctuate, um, but this causes an enormous staffing problem. Uh, and everything at DOC flows from staffing, from security to the staffing of posts to the provision of basic services. So going back to what I said earlier about the conditions that detainees are facing, you know, they can't go to medical visits. They can't go to the law library. They don't get outside for recreation, which, by the way, is a getting outside for recreation is a critical part of being incarcerated. You have, you know, you have to do it. Um, they have to be let outside. It causes all kinds of psychological problems, et cetera. And, and um, so everything flows from staffing. And when as a result of the staff of the staffing crunch, because staff posts were being unmanned, the city had to do a series of things. They had to make officers go to double double shifts, sometimes triple shifts. They started shipping detainees upstate. All the women in the women's jail, Rosem Singer, were sent to the Bedford Hills State Correctional Facility. I mean, just think about that for a second. You're sending pre-trial detainees who have not been convicted of a crime to a state prison. Um, and, you know, um, also male detainees were sent upstate as well, and they were sent all over the state. So you go from Rikers where you're you're isolated, but still within reach of Brooklyn to a, to a prison six hours away uh, where your family can't hope to uh, to see you without, you know, extensive pre-planning, et cetera. Um, so those were the that was the. Those were the solutions. And of course, those, those generated litigation of their own. There's a case filed on behalf of women who were, who were sent to Bedford Hills that's pending. Um, there's a couple of other lawsuits o over that. So staffing creates all kinds of problems. The, the, the lack of staffing creates all kinds of problems that then spill down. And not to mention the, the correction officers who have to work double and triple shifts. That is a brutal situation. And it, it causes all kinds of problems in their lives and creates resentment within the ranks about people who are off. I did a story last week about the abuse of sick leave. Uh, um, I used one example, but there are, there are many of a party that was held in July at a club in Brooklyn that, that was attended by almost a dozen officers who were on sick leave. And it was called the Summer Jam Party. Uh, and investigators infiltrated the party and took pictures and video. 
and uh, suspended nine officers for that. But there are other examples. There are cigar parties, there are retirement parties. Um, it just, not setting aside the optics of that, it doesn't look good for anybody that officers are doing that. It just, it just hurts their own uh, fellow officers uh, by not showing up. There's also a lot of reports of um, sexual assault on COs, uh, not just from coming from inmates, but uh, from years ago, you know, coming from other correctional officers. I remember interviewing uh, Robin K. Miller, who was a a guard. She came out with a book about uh, she was a retired female uh, CO at Rikers. And she would say that there was there were all these strange dynamics amongst the guards. You know, if uh, if you were unpopular, if they didn't like you, maybe you would be left in a dangerous situation. I mean, of course, that was back then. That was like 25 years ago. But uh, there was a young woman that was just recently assaulted by an inmate um, at Rikers. And that also feeling unprotected, the female COs has been kind of like a growing, it, ha- it, it's an old problem, but it's been getting talked about more and more lately. Can you speak to that a little bit and like what's going on there and with any possible fixing of that situation? Are people paying attention to it at all? Yeah. Well, I, I you know, uh, about six months ago, the union picked up uh, this issue as a as a major priority. Um, it, 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 the unusual for many uniform services, the DOC, basically half of all correction officers are women. Um, many of them are moms, um, and and um, they're put into these facilities, uh, you know, alone with in male facilities, very uh, you know, as a matter of course. And uh, often there, are, there, the way it works is there's an officer in a bubble, which is like a little self-contained room that has that has has lines lines of sight in the unit. But then there's a floor officer who walks around, and the floor officer is basically exposed. Her protection is her radio and a button that she can push if she gets into trouble that will bring a response. Uh, the staffing crisis has this is another big problem with the staffing crisis. The, the, the Stanley Richards said the other day in my story, uh, he'd seen instances where the response came 15 to 20 minutes. So you have this officer who's alone uh, for that period. Um, as far as the sexual assault uh, issue, it, it became the union made it a big issue. And they're actually uh, trying to get legislation which um, passed in Albany, which increases the penalty for that kind of conduct. Um, and I just did a story about an officer in today's paper who who was alone uh she was doing some administrative task and she was grabbed and shoved up against the wall and sexually assaulted by a guy who had a terrible prior record of sexual assault he was a sex offender prior conviction for assaulting a five-year-old girl um and he had come back to records on a, on a parole violation um and interestingly enough the first response was from other detainees who heard her scream and came rushing to protect her from the uh, from from this guy. He he when he saw them coming, he took off and sequestered himself in a in a shower area, and he was arrested and he got uh, seven he got seven years added onto a sentence and he's upstate now. But it's this is something that it, that happens and that 
I, I, one of the complaints I've heard is that is that uh, either I've heard two different reasons why these these cases aren't haven't been um, more uh, resulted in more uh, criminal charges. One is they're hard to prosecute. That's one reason I've heard. I'm not saying giving validity to it, but this is one reason I've heard. Second one is the the, the DOC in the past has sort of administratively discouraged those kind of unofficially, you know, those kinds of reports. Um, that's certainly changing. That's become, it's become a uh, much more of a priority within DOC ever since the last year when the union started raising hell about it. Um, so, you know, it's a dangerous job and um, you're in there alone and anything can happen. You, your, your tools are your voice and your reputation and, and that's it. You don't have a sidearm. You don't, you know, um, it's a very, very difficult job. So Greenman, I'm still on the 15 to 20 minute wait for, for someone to come, but since you've been reporting so diligently and, and trying to, to highlight this issue, if you could sit down with Mayor Adams, some other leaders who have money and resources, what would you tell them need, you, you know, sort of what would you say, these are the three priorities, this must happen right now. I mean, you have an inside understanding and analysis that it seems as though so many elected officials uh, just don't have. And, you know, I think some people do listen to this podcast uh, who are elected officials. So if they are listening, what would you tell them they need to do and where would we start? This problem seems so massive. Step one is they have to get the they have to get the rank and file back to work. You, the, the posts have to be staffed. The services have to be provided. Um, I can imagine over the next if that doesn't happen, I can imagine over the next year a ton of litigation being filed over this that will bog the system down for years to come. Um, and it's I'm sure it's already starting. You know, we saw uh, legal aid. Uh, put out that thousands of medical visits, medical appointments were missed. That's, that's like a major thing, you know, people missing their medical visits, their medical appointments. Um, so that's one, they have to get the staff back to work. Uh, there might be some changing of some regulations or city policies around absence, the absence policy that, that should be considered. Um, you know, just getting, let's trying to get back to normal you know, and I should mention that the pandemic has been a huge factor in all of this. Uh, you know, correction officers have died from COVID. Uh, detainees have died from COVID. This is this is a major. But getting back to normal should be priority one. So staff has to come back to work. The posts have to be uh, staffed. The services have to be provided. And from there, um, you know, then 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 you can start to consider bringing the programs back. Uh, one of the big uh, initiatives of the Julian administration to close records was bringing programs. Uh, as a correction officer, retired correction officer told me, you know, and detainees told me who, you know, I've interviewed people going all the way back to the seventies. You know, they, they told me variations of, you know, nothing good happens in Rikers. There's no programs, you know, I mean, there are programs, but to the, to the extent that they make a significant difference in the majority of people's lives, that's, that hasn't been the case. And, and once you have the basics set, then you move to, to bringing the programs back and start and trying to 
provide some kind of, you know, some kind of opportunity for people who have landed in Rikers to, to uh, go back out of society and, and, you know, make progress, you know, towards having uh, a good life. Graham, thank you for taking the time. I think we have time to get to two more of these questions, and then we'll have to have you back on. There's a lot happening, and you've been all over it. Uh, first off, speaking grimly about activities, can you talk for a minute about uh, Realtor G and the judge's decision that, that means he's no longer at Rikers, and you're reporting that? Yeah, this is unbelievable. I mean, this is an extraordinary case. So it, it uh, New York County defenders filed a lawsuit on behalf of a detainee who they named Relator G. That's his code name. They didn't, we don't know what his real name is. He hasn't gone public. Uh, and uh, the case uh, turned on, on, on the contention that the conditions are so bad in Rikers that this man should be released just for that reason. And uh, uh, in December, Judge April Neubauer, who's a Supreme Court judge in the Bronx, ruled that indeed the conditions were so bad that he should be released and he was released. Um, and so this has broader implications for, because Relator G's experience um, was uh, just as bad as everybody else's. On top of that, he was forced to fight in a, in kind of a gladiator style combat inside the jail where he was. Uh, by other detainees, and there's video of the of the poor correction officer who is staffed there, who is just like basically trying to hold the waves back as these inmates are going around her and arranging this gladiator style fight. Um, I mean, it just showed the level of dysfunction, and it you know. Um, so I I'm I would guess that that case that decision by Newbar will then be used in other litigation um, as as time goes forward. Um, and it's, it's a real concrete example of how bad the situation is and what the obligation is of DOC to provide a safe environment that has services for the detainees. Um, back when I was at The Voice, I wrote about a different situation in RNDC, the teens, where there was also gladiator-style combat, where the correction officers were actually allowing these fights to take place either out of, out of indifference or, uh, you know, for whatever reason, these, these kind of fights were taking place as a spectacle. There was even allegations they were gambling on the fights. Um, and, and as a side part of that, they were allowing gang members to basically run the units and to, because they didn't want to deal with having to run the units. So, um, this is all connected, but, but, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that related that that case will 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 generate other cases. There will be other releases, and it once again points up uh, what the problem is in very real terms. And to close here, staying with the theme of all of this being connected, but stepping away for a moment from Rikers, can you talk about the standoff between detainees and staff uh, at uh, Horizon Juvenile Center? in the Bronx, uh, violence there more generally, and and Eric Adams' visit, please. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Horizons, uh, there are two juvenile facilities in the city, Horizons and Crossroads. Uh, Horizons in the Bronx, Crossroads is in Brooklyn. 
um, they were turned over as a as a as a hope for, uh, for reform by de Blasio administration from DOC to the Administration for Children's Services, which is the Child Welfare Agency. Uh, and it was hoped that they would that the uh, that the teens in that facility would receive additional services uh, that and maybe catch them earlier before uh, before they had committed a crime so serious that 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 it would land them in state prison for a very long time. Anyway, so, but the thing is that ACS has had trouble with, with uh, security in, in the facility. And, uh, um, and also the, the teens who are there have been unhappy with the conditions uh, there as well. And so uh, those two things came together uh, a week ago Monday in, in a standoff that, that in which, for a certain amount of time, and it's unclear how long. Some people say it was hours; others say it wasn't very long. Uh, three staffers were held by uh, eight teen detainees there who were using broken glass as uh, as they're like making weapons from broken glass and threatening them. And, and it wasn't until about twelve thirty uh, into Tuesday, twelve thirty a.m., that the that the NYPD got in and was able to defuse it. Um, so that brought up a whole what's been going on there. So what I found was a, a drumbeat of violent incidents going back months um, that showed a lack of uh, a lack of uh, lack of safety, including a horrifying picture. I got a horrifying picture of a teenager, 16 years old, who had been slashed repeatedly in the back, his wounds crisscrossing his back. Um, he had been held down because there was not enough security. He was he was held down by other other teens and beaten and kicked and then slashed in the back. And there were about eight or nine or 10 slash wounds across his back in, in kind of this configuration. Um, and um, so that there's, a, there's, a, there's a problem there. And I think Mayor Adams recognized that and he visited there on Thursday after our story ran. Um, and he's the first mayor in the history of mayors to visit Horizons, which I think is an extraordinary thing. Uh, you know, um, and it's it sends a real clear message that, that when he says that he's interested in what the rank and file have to say, I think this is a confirmation that he is indeed interested in what the rank and file have to say, because he went and he toured and he spoke to staff. And then he had a meeting with with the administrators in which he basically said, look, get, you, you folks have to get your your your, your ship in order here. Um, I, I don't, you know, de Blasio never, and he also said, he told me after the, after he came out of the building, he said, I'm not an ivory tower mayor. And I think, you know, he views himself that way. He, he's he's going to go out and visit these facilities in person. He hasn't gone to Rikers yet, but, you know, I'm sure that's coming. Anyway, you know, the situation at Horizons is concerning. And there's one last element, which is that they're not just 14, 15, 16 year olds there. They're, they're, there are detainees there as old as 18, 19, 20. And one reason is that the courts are, are still fun, non-function, not functioning as they should be. And that, that has been a, that's a huge problem all over the criminal justice system, from Rikers to the PD to Horizons. You know, that, that's something that has to get corrected. Sorry, just to clarify, are you saying that at Horizons there are 18, 19, and 20-year-olds that are there still awaiting trial? Correct. And have been there since before they were 18? 
I'm not sure about that. Yes, yes, that's okay. my understanding. I mean, you know, they have been there. I wouldn't, they haven't been there four years, but they might have been there for more than a year, you know, up to two years. Um, again, this horizons is another problem. When I asked ACS what happened that, that Monday night, all they said was there was an incident. So everything else that I got from that had to come from uh, sources and documents developing, developed after that. So, you know, once again, we, we, we are faced with a system that views itself as closed to public inquiry, and we have to find other ways to, to get the information. Brian, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. We really appreciate it, and we hope this is the start of a conversation. We can keep going over the uh, months and years to follow. I really appreciate the time. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Steve Romaleski, thank you for uh, rejoining FAQ NYC. Um, map maker, map maker, make me a map. <laughs> so we have. I love we to have, come on back NYC and be serenaded. <laughs> well, <laughs> have great conversation. Uh, so you have these awesome maps. Everyone should check out at New York dot redistricting and you dot org where you can see for where you live and for the whole state <clears throat> the current uh the, the current map of your uh, congressional district and state senate district and state assembly district and also the new map um or the proposed new maps that come from the democratic party after uh the state asked uh, new yorkers asked for nonpartisan maps we got them they couldn't agree on a set of nonpartisan maps the, the democrats took back over and here we are. Can you uh, can can you start off just by by giving a global view of of this process, uh, where it's at, and and what it actually means for uh, New Yorkers who, who we're thinking about who's representing them and their votes and all that. Sure. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll give the bird's eye view first, and then I'll talk a little bit more specifically about why we're we are where we are now. So. The first thing is, uh, I think probably the last time I was on FAQ NYC, I was, we were talking about census because it was during the data collection effort when people were filling out their forms online or mailing them back in. And uh, there was a whole you know effort to try to make sure everyone was counted fairly and accurately. And so that was completed. And the numbers came in. And the first thing that's done with the decennial census population count is reapportioning Congress. So each state gets a number of congressional seats based on its population, the updated population from the decennial census. Uh, in, in that case, New York, we had 27 districts because our population relative to other states uh, was not didn't grow as much and, and uh, the like. We ended up losing a seat. A lot of people thought we would lo lose two seats, but we only lost one going from 27 to 26. And so then the question is, well, all right, now that we have, even if we had kept the same number of seats, the next step with census data is that congressional districts and also state legislative districts and a number of other types of districts, the you know, city council districts and the like, the, this is the principle of one person, one vote. And so each district has to have the same population within a jurisdiction, so in this case within New York State as all the other districts in New York state. And because populations have changed since the last time the lines were drawn uh, after the 2010 census, 
Some districts were or are overpopulated, as it were, and some are underpopulated compared to the new statewide district average population. And so that guarantees that the lines will need to change to, at the very least, ensure population equality. There are a lot of other character, a lot of other factors in redistricting that have to be met, criteria that have to be met. We could talk about those, but that's the main underlined one. And so that's the main reason why the lines need to be redrawn. So there's also compactness and like what what are, what are the other things that uh, lawmakers have to consider when they're drawing these lines and then where are they allowed to uh, to play and, and, and to do things that are politically useful for people and all that? So redistricting, the, the redrawing of legislative lines, it ends up being kind of complicated because the, the line drawing itself these days with computers and computer mapping software and all sorts of data you can get your hands on is not the, the technical aspect of it is not as challenging as the other issues of number one, uh, beyond population equality, making sure that the districts uh, meet various requirements of the Voting Rights Act uh, to make sure that uh, populations of color don't go backwards in terms of their ability to elect candidates of choice. Um, for example, they call it regression um, or retrograde, whatever the term is. Uh, and then um, there are sometimes other provisions that are in now the New York State Constitution, such as uh, making sure that di- districts are contiguous, <clears throat> that there aren't little pieces of them all over the place, that uh, making sure that the core of existing districts is maintained that you minimize the number of local jurisdictions that you cut through. So, you know, one town isn't, you know, uh, bifurcated by eight different legislative districts, for example. Um, and also compactness. So ideally, the district doesn't snake through all sorts of uh, places in crazy ways. Um, those are the main ones. Uh, and then there's also this concept or idea of communities of interest which the, you know, the theory is that like-minded people living together and have, you know, similar uh, traits or characteristics or interests should be in the same district. Now, you can imagine that a lot of these things are sometimes at cross-purposes with each other and uh, sometimes are, you know, somewhat vague, like communities of interest. What does that really mean? Um, and so that's the challenge of trying to draw lines that, meet all these criteria, uh, won't get a lawsuit, you know, uh, against them and will also hopefully, uh, be acceptable to the public because, you know, there's a lot of talk about, of course, what this means for partisan politics. Will the Democrats be in control? Will the Republicans be in control, et cetera? And that's important, but the, the, people living in these districts will have to contend with the impact of the districts for another decade. And so hopefully the idea is that, you know, you draw districts that are copacetic to the people living there. Um, And that also could be challenging too, because, you know, people uh, think different things and we're a pretty diverse city and and state. And so how do you do that? That's uh, not easy all the time. So Steve, 
One, thank you for coming back on FAQ NYC. For our listeners, you, you all know that Steve is one of my top three favorite New Yorkers. <laughs> Harry Siegel's in that list, too. Um, but I so appreciate your interactive maps. And again, we'll put on our website where our listeners can go to check out uh, newyork.redistrictingandyou.org. That's and Y-O-U. Um, but I had a question because when the the maps, the proposed maps first came out the other day, it felt like mass hysteria because of District 11, sort of Nicole Maliotakis and Staten Island. And you just sort of said kind of, you know, we're trying to put like-minded people together. And there was a conversation about Park Slope and Gowanus possibly joining in the Staten Island district that overwhelmingly went to Trump. And if Park Slope, a, a very participatory district, goes uh, and is redrawn into District 11, uh, that it would switch almost overnight from being a Trump district to a Biden district, from a very sort of reddish-purple district to a hardcore blue district in many ways. Is this a tempest in the teapot? Uh, is this by necessity, or or Democrats just taking power and running with it? I mean, when I went to gerrymandering camp, <laughs> yes, I went to gerrymandering camp with mathematicians <laughs> and political scientists, and we talked a lot about packing and cracking and how we wanted to either pack, we didn't want to, but what happens is you either pack certain communities in a district to dilute their vote, or you crack up their district to dilute their vote as well. We see this happening with African-Americans all across the country. But why why that particular district? Are, are sort of downstate Democrats trying to make sure they lock in more Democratic representation in Washington, D.C.? Or is it just, we, you know, in 1911, we have 435 members of Congress. That number has been frozen since then. And so we had a population of 120 million people in 1911. And now we have a population of 330 million, but we still only have 435 representatives in Washington, D.C. So walk us through that part. So, so that's an interesting lead into what I was going to say, which is, so I think it's important to just understand why this is happening or hopefully approach the, an understanding of why it's happening to step back and Remember that congressional districts are big, partly because there's 435 of them throughout the country, and so each state gets a certain number. And then, so in New York State, we have 20 million people or so based on the 2020 census. If you divide that by 26, I don't remember the exact number, but it's more than 700,000 people. That's a lot of people and communities to put into a single district. So, number one, because congressional districts are so big, it's especially hard to include like-minded communities, all of them, in one district. You're, it's inevitable, especially in New York City, that you're going to get communities that are different in a variety of different ways in a single congressional district. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing is, on Staten Island, so there's this uh, uh, criteria or provision where you know districts should be contiguous and if you had a contiguous district on Staten Island, it would just cover Staten Island. But there aren't enough people on Staten Island to have to, to meet that population equality criteria. That's, again, where sometimes these criteria are at cross purposes with each other or con conflicting or contradictory. So you have to go beyond Staten Island. So then the question is where? <clears throat> and Brooklyn is the closest, next close, uh, the closest borough. Uh, so Brooklyn is the likely place. How far into Brooklyn? Which communities in Brooklyn would you include? Um, and so that's uh, that's where the challenge is, and that's where the complication comes. And 
the district certainly doesn't need to go up along uh, uh, Prospect Park into Park Slope. It, it has gone in other places. Um, but so that's a you know good question about what's going to happen now. And I guess the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that Again, there's a lot of talk about, well, this is going to be a Democratic district, this is going to be a Republican district. You know, in some cases, perhaps that's true, but especially with District 11, you know, voters on Staten Island, um, I'm pretty sure there are more enrolled Democrats on Staten Island than there are Republicans. It typically elects a Republican congressional representative, but not always. Um, and uh, Governor Cuomo has done well on Staten Island. Uh, Barack Obama did well on Staten Island. So it's, you know, voters are not monolithic and they don't always vote the same way from one election to another. It all depends on the candidate, the issues, what's going on in the world, etc. cetera. <clears throat> um, so probably unlikely, but who knows? Maybe there'll be a candidate that will be very acceptable to people across the new district from Park Slope to the South Shore of Staten Island. Uh, you know, that's, who knows? So I don't think off the bat we should say, well, this is a horrible, outrageous idea. It certainly seems like when you look at the numbers of, for example, people that voted for President uh, or candidate Biden at the time and President Trump in 2020, uh, if you look at, at the number of people in the Brooklyn side of the new district or the proposed district, it would go from uh, about 40,000 people who voted for Biden to 80,000. And the number of people who voted for Trump in the Brooklyn side of New York 11 would go from about 40,000 to 20,000. <laughs> so if that's an indication of what will happen in the future and what the thinking was behind the map makers, you know, it's reasonable to think, well, that was done on purpose. Um, but again, it's, you know, it, I, I don't think anything is certain in this business, and it's not a guarantee that that means that, you know, the district will forever now going forward be Democratic or represented by a Democratic congressional representative. Who knows? And, and Stephen, you, you mentioned the map makers. Can you walk our listeners through who the map makers are? Because there are lots of organizations, independent organizations who are saying, you know, we came out with maps and it's not the map that, you know, is being proposed. So those are independent organizations that want sort of either nonpartisan map drawing, but who are the map makers? So that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to Errol Lewis on New York One. He asked me that same question. I have no idea. <laughs> I, you know, the, the way, so actually uh, it, as a roundabout way of answering that or addressing that question, let me continue with the kind of overview of why we are where we are now. So we talked about why every district. Um, how do you do that? So prior to uh, 2014, for you know decades, probably forever, the state legislature was in complete control of redistricting for Congress, for congressional districts across New York State, and for state Senate and state assembly districts. Um, in after the 20 <laughs> after the 2010 census, uh, at the time the Senate was controlled by Republicans, the, de the assembly was controlled by Democrats. Number one, they couldn't come to an agreement on the congressional lines and people sued, outside stakeholder groups sued, and 
it ended up uh, at, with a federal district court judge who drew the lines for Congress, the congressional districts that we have now. <clears throat> and uh, I think anyone you talk to in the stakeholder community, the voting rights organizations and the like, they'd say that the uh, congressional districts that we have now are pretty fair and pretty representative. Uh, they were very involved, actually, in helping the district court you know, understand how to draw the lines. Um, on the Senate and Assembly lines, this, typically what had happened in the past is the Senate leadership, Republican-controlled, would say to the Assembly leadership, Assembly-controlled, uh, I don't have any direct evidence of this, but this is what I understand was the, you know, the types of conversations that would happen. They would say, all right, you want this, we want this, we all have to vote on this together, you know, let's come to an agreement. And that resulted in assembly lines that tended to favor Democratic candidates and Senate lines that tended to favor uh, Republican candidates. For example, congressional districts, the population needs to be very precise, just within one person of the statewide average. State legislative districts, because they're smaller and sometimes the uh, thinking is it's harder to get them to meet all these other criteria and also exact population equality, the, there's an allowance of plus or minus 5% from the statewide average population. And in the past, that was abused in New York, where in the Senate, the Senate districts in New York City were all maxed out at the plus 5%. That meant that New York City received fewer Senate districts than they could have if all of the district populations were equal. And so that meant generally that there, were, there was less Democratic representation in the Senate, uh, and it was just the opposite in the Assembly. So um, <clears throat> stakeholders argued to then-Governor Cuomo that the lines that the Senate drew on the Senate side and the Assembly on the Assembly side, but especially on the Senate, were so gerrymandered that Governor Cuomo should veto them and send a message to the legislature that this is outrageous, you have to go back and do a better job. And the governor said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to cut a deal. And I'll say to the legislature, no, I won't veto your lines if you will agree to put an amendment, a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would create this reform of the process. And that's what happened. <clears throat> so we've been stuck with horribly gerrymandered lines in the Senate and to some extent in the Assembly for a decade. And the hope was, all right, we've now got this new process that we will have after the 2020 census that will result in fairer lines because there will be a so-called independent redistricting commission involved in drawing the lines, and they will have to hold public hearings across the state and solicit public comment, which was never required before. And they would have to follow a set of criteria that are not now spelled out in the Constitution. That wasn't the case before. So now there's the state Constitution that has direct authority over how they should draw, what they, what they can and can't do when they're drawing the lines. And so that's what the hope was. <clears throat> but the reality was the amendment that the voters approved in 2014 also said that if the commission either sends a plan or plans to the legislature that the legislature rejects, or if they do not send a plan or plans to the legislature, the legislature can step in and, this is overstating it to some extent, but do whatever they want. And that's where we are now. <clears throat> and so, forget... <laughs> 
where we started, but <laughs> that's, so, so that's that the was reality so, of the situation now. It, it was all so hopeful until you get up to the end and, and you know, you have these hearings and, and voters actually weighing in and then uh, lawmakers, ah, never mind that. We're, we're just going to do what we like. So I have two questions for you here. The, the, the first is sort of a broad one, but to some extent, instead of voters picking the representatives, doesn't this feel something like representatives picking their voters? And as Democrats nationally are really worried about uh, about Republican efforts to dilute voting rights, are Democrats doing some of that as local Republicans are charging in New York? If we're looking at potentially swinging, you know, three or four congressional seats with these new maps, um, and if this only solidifies the uh, Democratic supermajority in Albany. So the, this question of whether elected officials are choosing their voters versus the other way around is really apt because the idea was that, well, if this independent commission, so-called independent commission, is in charge, then and they're soliciting all of this public comment, you know, the, goal, the, the idea was, the theory was that they would be drawing lines that would be based on what the voters wanted, it, without regard necessarily to what the incumbent elected officials wanted. Because, you know, the, the elected officials, they have a, a strong vested interest in drawing lines that protect them. I used to work for uh, the New York Public Interest Research Group, and we would, uh, you know, on environmental and consumer issues, and we would go to Albany and lobby on these things. And the legislative director, the, the NYPRD legislative directors over the years, they would always point out that, you know, the incumbents follow one rule, and that's to get reelected. <laughs> and so if they're the ones drawing their lines, they're going to want to uh, ensure that that stays the case. Um, so, but that's where we are now. So the, that's, that's why the, it's unfortunate that the, when you talk about the reform that was supposedly embodied in the 2014 constitutional amendment, you have to put it in quotes. Um, uh, so the legislature, but you know, the thing is, that's what the amendment allowed. The legislature is perfectly within their right based on that amendment to step in and, and do, you know, redraw the lines. Now, of course, they can't draw the lines in any which way. They have to be cognizant of the Voting Rights Act and Supreme Court uh, decisions, because if they don't, they'll get sued and they might, you know, the, the lawsuits might win. <clears throat> but if they stay, you know, close enough inside those lines, as it were, it's unlikely they will lose a court case. And um, so, <clears throat> so that's where we are now. Steve. Uh, our producer, Adam Kamara, is telling us we are in overtime. So I'm going to lightning round you for the end here. And thank you, as always, for coming on and taking the time and sharing some insight. We really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. CD11 aside, uh, what are a handful of maps you think are the most interesting and in how they might be redrawn and that uh, voters, particularly who live there, might want, might want to take a look at in the city and in the state? Well, you know, another thing to point out, I, and I've been, you know, saying that, well, now the legislature is in the catbird seat and they can do almost whatever they want. But, you know, at the same time, it looks like, at least on the Senate side, they have decided to draw lines that kind of smooth over some of the egregious gerrymandering that we've had to live with for the past 10 years. 
And so maybe that's a good thing. So I guess the part of the point is they're not necessarily going to do awful things. The tendency, because they have this vested interest, is that they're going to draw lines that may not represent what the community wants. But that's not guaranteed. They might uh, do a good job. Who knows? Hopefully they'll do a good job. A lot of stakeholders, for example, have been urging the legislature to draw a state Senate district that is more representative of the Asian community in Sunset Park and, and uh, South Brooklyn. And it looks like they've done that. Maybe not exactly as the groups wanted, uh, but they've done that. Um, in Richmond Hill and Ozone Park in Queens, uh, people have been complaining for years that, you know, they have their, their communities are cut up by like seven legislative districts. And so when they try to talk to their representatives, they have to, you know, run around to seven different offices. It's crazy. And so it looks like they have now gotten a, an assembly and I think a Senate district that is more cohesive for those neighborhoods. So that's a good thing. Um, Christina, you were asking before about, so who draws the maps? I think that's where we were getting to when I went through that long discussion. And so the maps initially were drawn by the commission, which was uh, they hired an outside consultant to do the drawing. And, but now that it's gone back to the legislature, the legislature has a staff through a legislative task force. And so presumably the legislative leadership is uh, instructing the staff to draw lines in certain ways with the input of the other legislators. The, the one downside or potential downside is that with the independent commission, at least the constitution said that there had to be these public hearings. Well, now the legislature does not have to have public hearings. And so there's not an effect. They've completely redrawn the lines. Uh, and so people should have a chance to comment on that. But that's not going to happen. So, you know, there uh, and outside stakeholder groups definitely have prepared a number of alternative district plans like the Unity Map Coalition, uh, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, Latino Justice, the Center for Law and Social Justice at Medgar Evers College that, you know, embodies the voting rights groups, the people of color uh, uh, goals and criteria, and they have come up with a plan that they've submitted. And, you know, it looks like maybe in a couple of places, the state legislature is following what they had urged, but in other places, they're not. So uh, we'll see what happens. Gotcha. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Can you please promise us you'll come back when we have a little more time? <laughs> Happily. Glad. Oh, fantastic. Once these are, are all drawn and Glad we're all <laughs> in miscellaneous districts. I hope I get to stay in my districts. I, I quite like all of my representatives. I think they're doing a great job. But You can Alrighty. find out exactly where you are by going to New York redistrictingeu.org. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, and we'll put that on FAQ.NYC website. But uh, for all of our listeners out there, it is New York.redistrictingeu.org. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. That was great. It really is great to chat with you guys. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and we are super excited to congratulate Michael Lindsay on his new position as Dean of the Social Work School. We've recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Graham Raymond of The Daily News and Steve Romaleski of the Center for Urban Research at the City University of New York Graduate Center. 
Our executive producer Thank is you. Alex Brooklyn. <laughs> like, yes. And Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. So be cool, be kind, be good. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>